This is Deeper Questions. Submerge in wonder, surface with hope. My name is Aaron Johnstone, and today we're asking the question, are you spiritual but not religious? Every time the census rolls around, there is intrigue, vigorous campaigning, non-stop commentary, and at times feverish hysteria about the decline of institutional religion. And while Australia continues to become more and more secular, it's not necessarily that everyone is becoming exclusive humanist atheists. Instead, what we're seeing is higher diversity with the rise of the nuns, those who tick no religion. But what does this mean exactly in modern Australia, and no doubt in other Western countries as well? Well, one thing that the data seems to be showing is that rather than people adopting purely materialist positions, there's a surprising openness to spirituality and spiritual ideas. It's just not in the traditional religious institutions as much. Spirituality is taking on many forms today, and it's worth digging into that a bit. Don't believe me? Well, today we have someone who has been thinking about this stuff for a while and was part of commissioning a study which has a bunch of interesting findings. We'll also meander through a bunch of topics and disciplines and authors and ideas that I hope you'll find as interesting as I did. It's quite a slippery word, spirituality. You might have either positive or quite negative associations with it in terms of it sounding kind of new agey. You know, we have a very vague sense of what that is. There are actually areas such as healthcare where people are increasingly acknowledging that humans have a spiritual dimension to us and that if you neglect that, you neglect that at your peril. Natasha Moore is a senior research fellow at the Centre for Public Christianity, a not-for-profit media company that offers a Christian perspective on contemporary life. They write for the media, have a long-running podcast called Life and Faith, they write books, they produce documentaries as well as classroom resources, seeking to be a Christian voice in the public square that is measured, generous and inviting. She has a PhD in English Literature from the University of Cambridge and is the author of For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined, as well as more recently, The Pleasures of Pessimism. She has worked for the Centre for Public Christianity since 2014 and writes on all kinds of topics with all kinds of publishers. Maybe you've even read her on the ABC or The Spectator, The Sydney Morning Herald, Eureka Street, Christianity Today or on your social media feed. She's also been a guest on the previous iteration of this show, Bigger Questions. I've followed Natasha's work for years, but I only met her in person recently, around a bonfire, after she gave the Henry Baldwin Lecture in Hobart. So we'll be bouncing off that lecture a bit, as well as freestyling here and there as well. Welcome to the show, Natasha. Thanks for having me. So, Natasha, you've recently moved from Sydney to Adelaide. How has the the move been for you, and what's your favourite thing about Adelaide so far? I hear there's some catchy sites like Terrible Mountain, Coffin Bay, (laughs) Dead Man's Creek, (laughs) Denial Bay. Uh, Have you been to any of those? (laughs) I have have not explored any of those places as yet. Um, I... I'm gradually exploring Adelaide and absolutely loving it. Um, I'm actually such a convert. My, um, I think people from Adelaide will not want me to gush as much as I would like to because they're all like, shh, we, we keep this a really good secret. <laughs> like, yeah, kindred Adelaide's wonderful. It's kind of, um, so, you know, where I live, there are two of Australia's best wine regions within half an hour yeah, of my house. Amazing. Two different ones. Not to, and that's not counting the Barossa, which is like an hour away, you know. Like the beach is 10, 15 minutes away. It's it's as though it has kind of the things that Sydney, where I moved from, which I also love and is my hometown, but it has the things that Sydney has, but they're close enough that you can enjoy them. Yes. Like without it being hard and involving a lot of traffic. Yeah. So well, I you've converted that. me already. Great. But I've, I've got all that in Tassie, so I, yeah, I speak that language. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so tell us uh, about the Centre for Public Christianity. What do you guys do and how did you find your way there? So we are a media company. We aim to be a Christian voice in the public square that is um, gracious and reasonable and inviting, um, that's wanting to contribute to the common good by, like, offering kind of a Christian perspective on our culture and the news of the day. Um, We think that's an important thing to um, do for everyone, for Christians and for people who aren't, because I think Christians have something to say within the public conversation. And if that perspective is missing, then we're worse off. Um, I think it's a benefit to everyone. Um, so we write articles and we have a we have a podcast called Life and Faith. Yeah, um, it's a great podcast. Love a good podcast. <laughs> we speak, we write books, we make documentaries, that kind of thing. I ended up there 
I want to say accidentally, that's not quite true, <laughs> but I certainly, after I did my PhD, I wanted to be an academic. That was my plan. It's lots of people's plans and there aren't very many academic jobs, particularly in the humanities. So um, I was like deep in the throes of that process. This job came up. My now colleague, Justine Toe, was going on maternity leave. And so they were looking for someone to take her place for a year. And I was like, well, it'd be cool to get some media experience, good for the academic career that I am definitely going to pursue, but I probably won't get it because I don't have any media experience. And then, yeah, did get it. Turned out to be the best job in the world. They asked me to stay. I was like, yes, please. <laughs> Bold claim. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? Um, and yeah, you, you mentioned there your background in academia, um, so English literature. Uh, do you have a favourite all-time novel? I do. It's Moby Dick. Right. Okay. So that stands the test of time. Have you read Moby Dick? Uh, not really. So a confession. I'm not much <laughs> of um, But when I say not really, I mean like no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of people started and don't like it, which is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm kind of even a level back from that. Like, I, I just seem to have some sort of allergic reaction to fiction in general. So mm. I, I plough through nonfiction, but um, yeah. You realise that I hear this as a personal challenge and now, you know, where at some point I'm going to need to recommend some books to you because I'm like, oh, you just haven't read the books that right for you. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Well, uh, yeah, feel free to send whatever books my way. Can't guarantee I'll touch them, but um, Mm -hmm. yeah, Mm -hmm. do my best. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Moby Dick, that's that's the one. Mm -hmm. Yep. Love it. And then uh, recently you came and gave a fascinating public lecture in Hobart on um, spirituality and secularism and society. And um, today we're going to be exploring that lecture as well as some interesting stats from uh, some research that you guys at the Centre for Public Christianity that you commissioned a couple of years ago. Touching on that lecture, you opened with Dante's Divine Comedy, um, another classic of the Western canon um, that I haven't read. I tried to read it oh, a couple of years ago and, and I didn't get past the monstrous 67-page introduction, which <laughs> tells you how to read it. Yeah, um, <laughs> So could you tell us uh, what it's about and why it sets the scene for a great conversation about Western spirituality, uh, even in an age of disenchantment and scepticism? Yeah. I mean, Dante, like, to be fair, it is quite a challenging read, The Divine Comedy. Um, It's 700 years old. It's originally written in Italian in this very particular rhyme scheme. It's full of, like, references to, like, popes and politicians and all these people of the day that you're like, who is this 13th century, um, you know, dude from Florence? I don't don't know what's happening. So it's... It's an undertaking to read it, and I get that. And, you know, I read it with a group of people recently. It was still, like, hard going, worth it but hard going. I was fascinated to discover that, like, a lot of people who read Dante go, this book saved my life or this book changed my life or, you know, this is the most meaningful book I've ever read. I think part of the reason it has that effect for people is because, I would argue, it's actually an epic poem about having a midlife crisis. Right. So on the surface of things, you know, the the Divine Comedy is in three parts. It's Inferno or Hell, Purgatorio or Purgatory, and Paradiso or Heaven. And the Pilgrim Dante, who is kind of the same person as the poet Dante who's writing the poem, but, you know, we kind of, like, they're not necessarily exactly the same, but they're very closely related. So the Pilgrim Dante is like, he finds himself halfway through his life, he's in a dark wood. He's like confused. He's lost his way kind of sort of literally in this wood, but in life. And Dante himself did have this big kind of midlife crisis where he was exiled from Florence and kind of wandered the country being like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. And he finds himself, Dante the Pilgrim in the poem, going on this epic journey through down through hell, through the imagined world of purgatory and then into an imagined world of heaven. Um, And he meets all these people along the way who have lived their lives in certain ways and that's had certain consequences for them. And so in theory it's about the afterlife, but it's actually kind of about, well, what is the purpose and direction of your life? Where does it go? What is the kind of natural ending point of the choices that you make? Mm. And it's it's got some very surprising things to say on that front. Um, we have a lot of kind of cultural imagination that comes from Dante. 
you know, in terms of like the circles of hell and like it's most it's mostly inferno that the imagery we know comes from. Yeah. Um, you know, comparisons <laughs> with with IKEA on a Sunday afternoon, like you can't get out yeah. kind of thing. But it means that like a lot of people read Dante and find it very compelling in terms of, okay, well, is my life truly about love? which is what Dante would suggest underpins the whole kind of fabric of the universe um, because that's what God is like and it's his universe. And what does that look like? Like what is my life really, you know, driven by and directed towards? And so, I mean, we I spoke about the Divine Comedy in the lecture partly because it was during Dark Mofo, the kind of winter solstice festival down in Hobart, and they have a lot of kind of divine this year. They had a lot of divine comedy, like theming. There was a performance that was based on that, and I thought, well, we could do a kind of a secular comedy version where we think about the life journey that all of us have within kind of a secular culture and what that means for our spiritual lives. Yeah, so the the Better Call Saul version of um, Dark Mofo. Yes, I'm going to go with yes, even though I've not seen Better Call Saul or <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Breaking Bad. Yeah, yeah. Is, is that from Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul? Have I got that yeah, right? You're basically an expert, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's um, let's uh, dig the screws in a bit more. Let's, um, let's talk about polarisation and culture wars. Mm. And rather than jumping headfirst into those spicy meatballs, <laughs> let's explore what's happening beneath the culture wars. Um, so you, you shared a quote that you can only have a culture war when you don't have a culture. And so let's talk about that that lack of culture. You were, of course, referencing someone else with that quote. Mm. Um, but you, you, you suggest that it plays itself out in three key areas. So uh, one, loneliness, two, affluence, and three, a loss of purpose. So could you walk us through these three characteristics of modern society and then how they then contribute to the mess and muck of culture wars? Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting quote that the... Um you know, you only have a culture war when you don't have a culture kind of anymore. I That's a quote from a guy called Paul Kingsnorth, who's a very interesting writer and ecologist. And I, I hesitated over like including the quote because I was like, what does that mean? Is that right? I don't actually, you know, I'm not sure I agree with him that we don't have a culture, but it's a very compelling line, right? Mm. And I think his point is kind of that the culture was a very surface there's a lot going on where we think that's the main game. We're fighting over these issues and we're on opposite sides of the issues. But actually underneath that, there are a lot of challenges uh, we're facing in our time which are shared between everybody. And we don't necessarily talk about them or we talk about kind of aspects of them, but we think the main game is those things we're fighting over and outraged about where maybe the shared experience underneath that, those are just a symptom of kind of deeper maybe maladies. Mm. And I think the loneliness and the affluence and the loss of purpose are kind of symptoms and related symptoms of that. Um, So shall we do some stats? Yeah, go for it. Stats are good, right? So here's a 2021 survey from here in Australia. This was commissioned by Telstra and uh, carried out by YouGov about the kind of loneliness epidemic that people often talk about. Yeah. They found that nine out of 10 Australians say they experience loneliness. 44% say we regularly feel lonely. Interestingly, 48% of people say they're too embarrassed to admit feelings of loneliness to others, which is fascinating for something that 90% of people say that they feel at least some of the time. Mm. But, you know, there are increasing stats about like, the number of people who say they don't have like any friends, like they don't have anyone they can really talk to or they have very few, people have fewer friends than they used to. So this poll said that 24% of Australians say they don't feel they have anyone to talk to. Oh, wow. 35% say they rarely or never feel like they're part of a group of friends. You know, this this goes deeply to quality of life um, and our experience of our lives. And I think to a lot of other sort of fracture points in society. But it's also really bad for our health. You know, apparently social isolation um, is as likely to cause early death as 
it's the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Far out. Yeah, which is a lot. Like these things affect us, like our social connections or lack thereof affect our physical and other kinds of health. Mm. Um, they say loneliness is twice as deadly as obesity. So, you know, this is a thing we're not doing well on as a culture. Mm. In terms of affluence, like you know, what can we say about this? <laughs> it's, it's the water we swim in, like we, and we feel, we feel not as affluent as we used to. Um, you know, we're in the middle of kind of a cost of living crisis here and there's a lot of struggle and heartache um, and anxiety that goes along with that. Hmm. But in so many ways, we're still obscenely wealthy, right, by historical and global standards. Um, and we have such expectations for what financial security looks like. And, and I mean, these things are interconnected, right? If you don't have a close network of people who you feel you're looking after and they're looking after you, your sense of, well, what happens if, if I can't pay for this or if I, um, you know, if something happens and I lose my income, we don't have that sense of like a net that has got us. We rely on the government for that, but not necessarily for others. For sure. And loss of purpose is an interesting one because that's kind of vague, right? Like let, we could talk about it in terms of people's, work, right? This is the thing that most of us spend most of our waking hours doing, some kind of paid work. But there was a Gallup survey from about 10 years ago. It was kind of the most detailed study um, carried out to date of how people feel about their work. Um, And what they found was that 13% of people say that they're engaged in their work Um, So they like it, they look forward to it, they think it's meaningful. That's not very many. It's not very many, is it? (laughs) No. Like not many more than one in 10 people. Yeah. Good thing you've got the best job in the world. I know. (laughs) I'm in the lucky 13%. Um, So the non-engaged category was 63% of people were in that. They define it as sleepwalking through their workday. And then 24% are actively disengaged. They like they just hate it. They hate their job. Yeah. And you know this is this is kind of old data now, but you know given the effects of COVID and lockdowns and the Great Resignation and people's burnout, mm. like rates of burnout and all that, I don't think we'd be looking at any more positive figures now. No. Um, as opposed to 2011, 2012. I mean, I got these figures from a book uh, called Lost Connections. So I see the connections again between (laughs) loneliness and the other things. But it's by a guy called Johan Hari, and it's actually about depression and hope. Hmm. Um, And he was finding that, you know, often we think of depression in terms of the biochemical stuff. Um, He's like, we really struggle as humans if we don't feel as though we have meaningful Um, action in our lives. Like we need to feel like what we do matters and it's linked up to a larger sense of purpose. So, you know, in terms of, I mean, all three of these things feed into a very widespread mental health crisis and our sense of, well, what, what do we think human life is for? What is a good human life? One that's worth living, you know, what's a reasonable amount of sadness and struggle and what is happiness and all those questions. We're very much struggling with, I would say. Yeah. And so one of the things that you posited in your talk uh, is that that people are kind of lacking an avenue to to talk about things that matter and to feel those connections. And and one of those things missing, uh, a crucial ingredient, could be the spiritual and the the inner life. So first I'll just ask, what what do you mean when you talk about spirituality and what are some of the the definitions that are out there? Mm. Yeah, it's a tricky, like it's quite a slippery word, spirituality. I think often, you know, you might have either positive or quite negative associations with it in terms of it sounding kind of new agey. Are we talking about dream catchers? Are we talking about, you know, astrology? Are we, I'm like a spiritual person. I, I, I'm about vibes. You know, we have a very vague sense of what that is. Other, like, there are actually areas such as healthcare, such as education, where people are increasingly acknowledging that humans 
have a spiritual dimension to us and that if you neglect that, you neglect that at your peril for, you know, forming young people in education or for caring for people well when they're sick. So, you know, it's accepted that these things exist and matter. What that looks like, you know, for individuals can be very different, but often it's to do with there being something other. Yeah. So that might be supernatural in the sense of, you know, there's a God, there's an afterlife, there's um, there are spiritual beings out there, there's like a spiritual realm. But it may be more in the sense of, well, I think that um, I'm more than atoms and neurons or I'm, you know, I believe that there's more to me, more to life, more to my relationships than just kind of matter. So it's about... Uh, having some sense of meaning and purpose in life. It's about connecting with some kind of other, whether that's nature, um, whether that's um, a higher being, whether that's another person. But those kind of definitions that look at that are kind of really inviting people to engage with life as more than, a, you know, a matter of pain and pleasure, yep. but as something that can have shape, that you have investment in, that you have responsibility for, that, you know, you have an aesthetic sense of as well. Mm. Um, And we have kind of a bit of a lowest common denominator attitude, I think, to talking about these things in public, that, you know, we can only talk about the stuff that you can touch and feel and that's, like, obvious and agreed upon Mm. um, in, you know, public discourse. And so we miss out on a lot of like what it actually is that matters to us as humans when we do that. I've seen a statistic that 49% of Australians say they never have a spiritual conversation, which if this is such an important element, that sense of there being something more to life, that's such an important element of human life. Like no wonder that we're struggling. Mm. I'm going to get into the research side of it now um, with the commission you guys did, but I think it's it's pretty easy to assume that people in the West, by and large, live this kind of materialist perspective to explain life, and um, and no doubt we would be less open to spiritual ideas and realms than other cultures, um, both around the world and historically. But yeah, having said that, you, so you guys worked with McCrindle Research to put together this super interesting study that shows that Australians are actually way more open than we would tend to believe. Do you want to walk us through some of the findings that you found there? Yeah, so this was quite fun. We This was in the lead up to Easter 2021. We were like, well, let's, let's see what it is that Australians say they believe in. We asked them about a bunch of kind of what we might call supernatural phenomena, phenomena. Uh, and we wanted to know if people believe in ghosts, in miracles, in angels, in a higher power or God. We asked them about the soul, about ultimate meaning or purpose in life, and life after death. So these are things that people, we probably all have an opinion about what other people would say. Do people believe in these things? Do they dismiss them out of hand? Hmm. And we gave people options. We were like, you could say, yes, I believe this exists. You could say, I'm open to the possibility of this existing. I'm unsure if this exists. I think this is unlikely to exist. Or I believe this does not exist. Are you following me so far? This is like Yeah, it wasn't just hard yes, hard no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a range, right? Yeah. Um, and the results were interesting. I think if you'd asked me, I would have expected that people would be big on the soul, maybe big on life after death, that they would be very like against angels, maybe miracles. But actually the least popular, <laughs> I don't know if popular is the right word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People's choice award. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ghosts, people were not big on ghosts. <laughs> they were like, ugh, ghosts. Um, so only 22% of people surveyed were willing to say, yes, I believe that ghosts exist. Okay. At the other end of the spectrum, so I was right about the soul. Like I had an instinct that, you know, people do think that we're more than like we're whatever they mean by I am a soul or I have a soul. People are like, I think there's more to me than my body hmm. um, or just a body-mind kind of dualism. Um, so 44% of people said, I believe in the soul. Okay. Which is still, which is a hard belief, right? Which is like, I believe it exists. Yeah. If you add in the kind of, I'm open to the possibility, then ghosts goes to like 48%. Souls goes to 69% of people are either, I believe in the soul or I'm open to the possibility. 
of that. Hmm. Though, and everything else kind of falls within that. Um, I mean, on the question of miracles, for example, about a third of people, um, so like 31.2% said, I believe in miracles. Yeah. 29%, almost another third, said I'm open to the possibility of that. So only like 13, 14% were willing to say, no, nah, no, nah, there's no such thing as a miracle. So even though, you know, these are things that we're maybe embarrassed to talk about or we think kind of don't belong in discussions between rational <laughs> humans and particularly in public, like people kind of think that there's more to life. I think that was, you know, the general finding. Like there's a real range. Not everyone believes in these things, but it's it's a bit of an illusion that Australians are kind of hard materialists. Yeah, okay. Yeah, super interesting. We'll link to like the article in the show notes, but this study wasn't released to the public, was it? Like the raw data side of it? No, we've got some um, like some pretty data from it on our website, but you know, in terms of all the ugly tables and stuff. No. Okay, <laughs> good to know. <laughs> <laughs> like we're happy to kind of share the information, but we haven't, you know, process. We didn't process all of it into public friendly formats. We're not hiding anything. To no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll chuck all the data that uh, looks nice and is very readable okay. uh, yeah, in mm. the show notes. Uh, now, one of the funny things uh, to come out of the study was that um, despite our introduction with the culture war stuff of wanting to go beneath it, the, like, the culture war still found you when you published your article. <laughs> That's true. What was it like to be um, egregiously misquoted, misunderstood, misrepresented <laughs> by people that had a bit of trouble reading and understanding your article. Yeah, this was a bit of a surprise, actually. Um, you know, I wrote what I thought was a very, I don't want to say innocuous article because I try not to write innocuous articles. Like I want to say something meaningful when I'm writing. Hmm. But um, the ABC published an Easter article that I wrote where I just wrote out some of the data and was like, oh, look, you know, interesting, like Australians are... Like there's more going on underneath here than what you might think of as, oh, Australians aren't very spiritual people. We're quite sceptical. It's like, hmm, maybe we're not as sceptical as you think. Not that controversial a point. I think other surveys show this too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I went away on holidays and didn't know until I got back. So Sky News picked it up and aired various outrage about it. They were like, it's the godless socialist kind of lefty ABC. That's how dare they kind of put out a poll at Easter about whether Australians believe in God um, <laughs> and they should be defunded. Um, Barnaby Joyce weighed in, Pauline Hanson weighed in, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, the usual kind of talking points, I guess, about what's wrong with the ABC without really noticing that actually in this instance, the ABC was platforming a Christian writer from a Christian organization who had, we had commissioned the research and were saying something that we found positive, at least interesting for all Australians about spiritual matters. So it ended up on Media Watch actually the following week where they pointed out that the outrage from, you know, supposedly kind of Christian quarters uh, was somewhat misguided. <laughs> um, I think in terms of my takeaways, partly it was quite funny. Also depressing that people don't actually read the article, yeah. right, which I know already anyone who writes for the media knows that people feel very free to comment on things that they haven't read, that sometimes it's just a hook for people to say what it is they want to say and, you know, yeah. what will be will be. But just that reminder that... What the culture wars mean is that you can always put a lens on something that means you will see what you want to see Yes, in a certain situation. And, and that's true for all of us. We all have our lenses and the more aware of those we can be the better. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so um, reflecting on that further, do you have any advice for anyone that wants to put stuff out in the public, um, particularly if they're trying to share like a subtle and carefully arranged idea? <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess I'd say pick your forum well, if you're going for a subtle and carefully arranged idea, you know, go for somewhere where people are more willing to hear that. Often podcasts, by the way, are like we get not that much outrage around our podcast because I guess you post something on social media, but like people have to go and listen to it. Mm. Um, and it sort of in that sense, engage with you more as a person in order to do that. And those like 
um, extra steps, I think, dilute some of the outrage and vitriol that sometimes get out there. One piece of advice that I heard recently and was really struck by was someone who said, if you're going to uh, put something out there, if you're going to write in public, and this could be on social media as well as in the media, the question you need to ask is, am I doing this for the good of others? Mm. Like so often when we're putting something on, you know, on Facebook or, you know, wherever we're writing stuff, we're doing it because you're like, I have something to say or I'm really frustrated and I want to, you know, prove I'm right or prove that these people are wrong. or And, and it's actually kind of about me, me venting yeah. or me um, proving something for myself. Yeah, people see right through that, don't they? Yeah. Um, so if, if you're going to put something out there, it really needs to be, you know, rather than venting to like your immediate family or friendship circle or whatever, if you're going to put something out in public, make sure that you're doing it because you think that there's something that people will benefit from hearing, that it will be a value add for them. Hmm. So I think that's kind of a a heart challenge yeah. and an intentions kind of question, which can be quite probing if we approach it honestly. Yeah, and there's something about our nature where, like, we find it cathartic as well to scream into the void. Absolutely. Um, so there's definitely that temptation. At first, right? Like, yeah. it's it's immediately cathartic and then it's it, it pulls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. World of pain follows. <laughs> mm. um, all right. Well, let's, um, let's jump back into the data again. Can you tell us about uh, young people and spirituality? I mean, I'm, I'm preempting the data here, but why do you think young people are more open to spirituality than older generations? Yeah, this is really interesting. I mean, a couple of things that we found in the data when you broke them down was that young people were much more open to spiritual realities than older people, and especially the oldest age group, which was the most um, sceptical. There was a little bit of a quirk in this data in that the way that the groups broke down, the oldest, like the 76 plus age group was skewed more male mm. and the 18 to 26 year old bracket skewed more female. Okay. And overall males were more skeptical of spiritual realities than females are, which is a common finding across various, you know, religions and cultures. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of a reinforcing thing there in terms of the oldest and youngest groups. But surveys in general um, have shown that young people are currently very open to various spiritual realities. So, I mean, like 49% of 18 to 26-year-olds said that they believe in the soul. 48% said they believe in life after death. And then if you add on the kind of open to the possibility, that's like another 28%. So, it's that like it's in the 70s for both of them. Yeah, wow. Which, you know, is quite high. Like 77% of um, young people were kind of like either probably or definitely I am or I have a soul. Like there's more to me than my flesh. Yeah, fascinating. You know, whatever they mean by that. Like it's a it's a complex <laughs> idea. <laughs> but in terms of the why, I can speculate. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Um, I think some of that, right, is just young people in general, right, not specific to this time or place, that young people are more likely like they're at a time in their lives when they're going to be asking about the meaning of life and when they're still figuring stuff out. So it makes sense that they'd be kind of rather than very fixed about that to be like, okay, I want I want to know, I want to understand. Um, if I'm an art student sitting around drinking coffee, I'm, I'm going to have these big conversations that, you know, 49% of Australians say that they never have. So I think they're at a time in their lives when they're considering these kinds of questions and not yet perhaps being sceptical about them. Though the preconception is is different to that, right? Like we kind of think that young people are not as spiritual, or at least because young people are less religious, they have lower religious affiliation currently. We maybe imagine that that would translate to, oh, they don't like believe in spiritual things. And that's not the case. Mm. Um, in terms of specifics of young people now, I imagine that there's some kind of responding to mess, um, to struggle, to loss of purpose, to some of the things we were talking about earlier, yeah, that okay. there's a lot that's unclear. And this is this is always true of kind of human life, right? Like there are always crises and um, messes and 
you know, plenty to worry us and plenty to worry young people as they kind of head into adult life. But there's a lot of kind of disconnection and unrest and, um, you know, huge mental health challenges. So I think that kind of being open to, well, if this isn't working, what else is there? Mm. What Like there's a hunger there that I think is consistent with what we're seeing in society generally. Yeah. Okay. So just a sense of like, there's got to be more, like almost a disillusionment with how things are. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm I'm open to figuring out what that is. Hmm. One of the books that you reference, which I've been meaning to pick up uh, for a while, is Tara Isabella Burton's book, Strange Rights. And um, you mentioned that she talks about this kind of hybrid remixed religion thing happening uh, and the ways in which uh, we're all consumers and creators in terms of our identities. Mm. Um, so how, how does this kind of connect with modern spirituality? Yeah, it's a really fascinating book. It's it's very kind of American skewed, but a lot of the things that she's talking about is it's really to do with religions of the internet, like how, you know, just as um, people talk about how the Protestant Reformation and like the radical transformation that it brings about um, in the world uh, is completely bound up with the technology of the day, which is, you know, the printing press. Similarly, the way that people are kind of doing religion or not doing religion or re, she would say, remixing religion, kind of mix and matching elements of religious practice and belief that's very much bound up with the the internet and the way that we relate to it. So, you know, she talks about how young people have always, like people who have grown up with the internet, are used to being, as you say, capitalist consumers and content creators. They're used to curating everything about their lives to them specifically. Mm. So, you know, a traditional religion can seem very, from that perspective, very rigid. You know, it's about creeds perhaps it's about you know like it looks like it's it can look like it's about conformity everyone does like it's one size fits all whereas they're like well I want to have a bespoke thing for me like the algorithm is geared to me I can make my own you know um one of the things Burton talks about is fan fiction like since the rise of fan fiction young people are very used to well I can kind of adapt this to my own kind of needs and interests this this narrative that's been put out there that I love, I can feed into it. I can make it my own. I can make it work for me. And so she says that people are doing this with religion. You know, um, you can take this element from this religion. So like even people who might say they're Christian might be like, well, I believe in karma or I believe in reincarnation. And, you know, I maybe practice Buddhist, some form of Buddhist mindfulness. Um, But I'm interested in like my family community is in this other religion. Hmm. You know, people there's there's also a kind of real capitalist streak to this in terms of everything can be marketed including kind of spiritual experience. Yes. So, I mean there was a I read a thing about how Columbia um University was doing a spiritual entrepreneurship course so that you could go and do this course and then, you know, so that you can market whatever spiritual kind of (laughs) product or... Start a cult. um, I mean, it might be like um, Sephora having um, like witchcraft starter kits. (laughs) You know, you can burn sage in your home. Like these kinds of, there's always a product. And that this is one of the ways that we signal affiliation and, Mm. and kind of commitment is that we want to buy the thing that signals that, you know, that brand or that product, like that's part of my identity, that's who I am. So all these things are kind of feeding into a mix and match, a pick and mix Mm. kind of spirituality. Yeah, and so there's that sense of like uh, our identities are very much fluid rather than fixed and you Mm. can just, yeah, add in all these different elements. And And it's on you. You've got to make it yourself. Yeah, yeah, and very interesting that, yeah, spirituality can obviously be very co-opted by kind of capitalist systems as well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, just a little. <laughs> um, so continuing on with uh, with her book, she has uh, these four pillars that you mentioned, um, so meaning, purpose, community and ritual. What's the difference, first of all, between meaning and purpose? Mm. And then what is it about religious traditions and groups that can provide these pillars? Yeah, I think they're an interesting set. I mean, it's not the only way you could conceive of it, I suppose, but like it covers an awful lot. If you've got 
those four things, if you've figured out a way to have meaning and purpose and community and ritual in your life, you're leading probably a like a more satisfying full life than if you don't have any one of those things. So yeah, I guess community and ritual are fairly self-explanatory. My understanding of the meaning versus purpose is that life has a meaning to it. It's not kind of just randomly one thing after the other. It's not meaningless. And we need to feel that, you know, we're kind of story-making creatures. We're meaning-making creatures. You know, we, like, even if we might claim that we believe that life is meaningless, that it doesn't have an ultimate meaning or purpose, like we kind of, we don't live well. We don't cope well with that idea. We have to kind of then make our own meaning. I think purpose within that is that within that larger meaning, I there's a, there's something for me specifically to do. Hmm. I have a, a role to fulfill within that larger meaning. Yeah. So, you know, how different you think those are. Is, <laughs> but you read the book. Yeah. I'm sure she justifies it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is a helpful distinction because um, like if you don't have a meta narrative, it's very hard to work out what you, the lead character, kind of <laughs> looks like. Mm. Yeah, I think I would think of it in terms of vocation. So I would go, life is meaningful. There's some way that I, in particular, am needed and, like, some way in which who I am and what I can do, where I am, matches with what's kind of needed out in the world and so that I can feel that my existence, you know, matters. Yeah, and makes a, a positive difference. Um, in terms of um, religious traditions and these pillars, I mean, certainly every major religion and every kind of cult would probably claim to um, be able to offer these things. Because if you can't, then your claim to be kind of a world-explaining system, like a, this is the way reality is, is probably not going to last very long um, because it won't work for people. Mm. Like, I would say that, you know, I'm a Christian here, right? So I think that the reason that Christianity can offer meaning and purpose and community and ritual in ways that where we're doing it well, in ways that are rich and satisfying, Hmm. the reason for that is because it's true. Like it tells you something true about yourself and how you're made and about the world that we're in and how we function, like how we're going to flourish. Yeah. And so it's going to provide those four things because that's what we're built for. Yeah. But, you know, every system, philosophical, metaphysical system is going to have to find answers for these things if it's going to kind of keep people invested in it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So one of the things that I suspect is a pretty significant factor in the mix, particularly for young people and thinking about religion and spirituality and these pillars, that sort of thing, is just the role that the the internet plays. So we talked about it in that sense of like consumers and creators, but there's obviously a lot more than like the internet is more than just those things. So could could you tell us what kind of ideas you've got of what role the internet is playing in kind of making us think about spirituality in maybe different ways? Mm. Yeah, that's a huge question. And I mean, like all technologies, it's kind of for better and for worse, right? Like we use it in ways that that make the most of its potential and ways that, yeah, maximize what's terrible about it and what's <laughs> affecting us badly. Um, so, you know, there is a sense in which, like this is all connection and disconnection, right? The internet promises to connect us and it does that, like, Part of the reason that you can have a pick-and-mix spirituality online is that you can go out and find your people and they can be increasingly niche interests and preferences and desires. Mm. And so you can find that community. You know, that that goes for kind of what we might call traditional religious options as well as other things. Like I have a friend who kind of goes, well, a lot of my students, she teaches at a girls' school, she's like, well, my students come and ask me questions about Christianity because they're on TikTok and there are all these people talking about Christian stuff on TikTok and they're like, hey, what's going on here? Like <laughs> it's not necessarily. Yeah, here it's huge well, there, the Christian yeah, TikTok scene. Yeah, it's a whole thing. So is, you know, witch talk. like yeah. the- <laughs> Narc talk for narcissists, yeah. all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Um, But on the other hand, none of that is the same as real community. Surely COVID taught us this, that face-to-face is different, that online 
can facilitate connection but is not the same thing as connection. Mm. I read recently that when you're connecting to, like Facebook is the opposite of somewhere where you see faces. Um, You don't see faces. You see kind of dead images of faces. Mm. When young people are surveyed about their feelings about being online, um, they'll say things like, I feel like I can be more myself online. Often that's a self-protection thing. Face-to-face, you can't kind of curate how you look. Um, You can't self-protect as much. You can't be as careful about what you say and don't say. Like, it's all happening in real time. Um, And both the penalties and the rewards of that are much higher. Um, And it's easy to opt out of it. You know, we have so many incentives to opt out of that. But it's also increasingly kind of sterile, I guess putting off what will really make us lead full and satisfying lives. Yeah. Okay. And so one of the pieces that you shared with me was by Freddie DeBoer, and we'll put it in the the show notes as well. Mm. Talking about the ephemeral nature of the internet, he says, there is nothing meaningful enough to make you happy that could not make you sad if you lost it. Mm. (laughs) So um, could you share some thoughts on how the internet compounds our risk-averse nature and what it might look like to kind of shake ourselves out of that? Yeah, I mean, I think particularly, maybe (laughs) particularly if you're an introvert like me, there are things that... um, online life encourages, rewards, intensifies that are very, like, it's very easy to go along with that, very difficult to resist it, but very unsatisfying if you um, do give in. So, I mean, it's not just the internet. It's kind of, I was thinking about something like um, how much more people used to call each other um, you know, unplanned, like there's a certain cutoff. So like one of my um, best friends and I, we are like, so I'm a geriatric me- millennial, right? Like I'm right on the cusp. I'm like an elder millennial. Yeah. And so we're the same age, but I feel like she's kind of more of the, has imbibed the older value of like being happy to kind of call and chat at any time. Whereas I find it stressful to be called out of the blue rather than texted or rather than have a set time for that. You know, we have this kind of, again, this curation of our lives, right? Like I want to be in control. Um, And younger people are even more horrified. There are all these memes and jokes about, um, you know, the horror of someone calling instead of texting. <laughs> um, and, and you know, stats about, like, people used to drop around to people's houses without that being a big deal, without being expected or planned. Yeah. And that's very, that's quite rare in most communities now. We're very disconnected from one another in lots of ways and very much we want that control yeah. um, over our time, over what we say and don't say. Um, and Freddie DeBoer kind of talks about how, like online life creates this apparently frictionless way to go about every aspect of our lives so that we are minimising the risk of like stuff being difficult or embarrassing or and essentially minimising the real friction of actual connection with other people. So the internet allows us to kind of ignore what he calls something like the main business of our lives, which is relationship with other people. And none of this is, you know, new or revelatory, but, um, you know, we kind of get into these grooves without really realising that that's the direction we're floating in and then realising how far we've come from what has traditionally been a more normal, (laughs) more connected and, you know, messier kind of way of being in the world and with one another. Mm. In terms of shaking ourselves out of that, Um, This is something that I'm grappling with at the moment. I'm not sure I have many real kind of breakthroughs on it as yet. One of the practices that I'm really interested in and that I've, you know, I'm working on kind of implementing more and I have at various points um, in the last decade or two um, is the practice of Sabbath. Mm. So that idea of taking a day, a week, where like work or anything work-like cannot intrude. It's not immediately obvious how that connects to kind of connection with others, but a lot of what disconnects us is that sense of having control, being productive, like not 
not being okay to rest and let go. Um, and relationships play into that hugely. Uh, there's a, there's a secular version of Sabbath, which people refer to as a techno Sabbath mm. of setting aside your phone of not being online for 24 hours a week, which I have not yet committed to that part <laughs> of Sabbathing. <laughs> yeah. Um, because, you know, that's hard. Yeah. Um, but there are a lot of rules that people have for themselves to try to kind of counter because we're not going to naturally make the decisions that are good for us, even if we know they're good for us. So mm. things like having your phone out of the bedroom, um, you know, not going to sleep with your phone or taking your social media off your phone. So you can be on social media, but it's not as like immediately accessible. Yeah. I think if people want to think through this stuff, one of the best thinkers on this at the moment is um, Andy Crouch, the American writer. His latest book is called The Life We're Looking For, and it's about technology okay. and how we can have lives that incorporate technology, but for our good instead of to our harm and to actually the profit of big corporations, which is mostly what it's currently geared towards yeah and there's that sense like with these things that we want to um regain control don't we that like the, the the internet is a place that encroaches upon your life and diminishes it and takes away and and like obviously there's a lot of great things about the internet um we live mm. in a world that's more connected than ever and um yeah there's there's incredible ease um with most things uh, which is kind of what you're talking about there before mm. But, uh, yeah, there's this sense of where's all the time go? Where's, like, who even am I when I'm online? Yeah, incorporating that in a conscious way, which is um, there's a path of least resistance that is is not helping us flourish. Mm. That, you know, I'm certainly finding it difficult to break out of. So let's um, let's move to the final part. One of the things that you talked about in your lecture was um, the sense of being thirsty, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, has a lot of meanings in today's world. Yes. Um, but, but you talked about it from the um, the context of Isaiah 55, which is your favourite passage of the Bible. Mm. What is it about this section that you find so alluring and what, like, why does it speak to you so deeply today? Yeah. There are like a number of kind of real high points in um, this one chapter in Isaiah 55, but the opening verses are kind of real favourites of mine within the whole Bible where it's this kind of plea that God is making to humans, to his people, where he's like inviting us to come and drink and eat and be satisfied. So, you know, he's not asking us to do something which is like painful or against our inclinations or against our good. He's like, come all you who are thirsty come to the waters, like, and, and for free, right? He's like, you who have no money, come buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without cost. It's like this awesome deal, but he's having to plead with us to do what's good for us. Like, this kind of reminds me a bit of the, <laughs> the choices we make around the internet. He's like, <laughs> come, make good choices for free and for your good. And like, um, you know, listen to me. <laughs> that thanks. I'll stick with what I had. <laughs> Nothing. <Yeah. laughs> Um, I find this a really helpful, these verses as a really helpful lens to set over culture, actually, when I'm looking around and seeing kind of culture war stuff, the conflicts that we have, and we tend to look at people who disagree with us and see their choices and ideas in terms of threat to us, whoever us is, to my people, to my tribe, to my values, what I care about. And that actually I feel as though like almost anything you can read about in the news or on social media, what it should really sound like when you read Isaiah 55, what it sounds like to me is that we're all really thirsty. Hmm. Like we're all seeking, we're all like yearning for a life of fullness and satisfaction and justice and peace, joy. Like we disagree on where these things are to be found and we're all kind of struggling. But once you see that actually we're all really thirsty people and often we are, like in the words of Isaiah 55, we're spending our money on what is not bread, we're spending our labour on what does not satisfy. Mm. God's like calling to all of us to stop being idiots, <laughs> basically, <laughs> and to come and, you know, drink of what's satisfying. And so I find it helpful to to 
look around and see thirst rather than threat mm. when there are humans who disagree with you or who are going about things differently from you. We're all thirsty. We all need water that we can't pay for. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good word. So one of the things that you talk about in your lecture towards the end, uh, you come back to this sociologist, Barmer. He talks about religion as this kind of meaning-creating system that transcends the material and gives us a reason to get out of bed beyond our circumstances. So I just want to ask you, uh, as a Christian, um, how does Christianity help you get out of bed every day? Yeah, that's a big question, <laughs> an intricate question. I feel like I could say lots of things, but... To be honest, it's the middle of winter. I'm finding it hard to get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> like, yeah. It's not that easy. Um, but I think the thing that helps me to get out of bed in the morning, that makes that seem worth it, when, you know, sometimes you're excited about your day and you're bouncing out of bed. Some days you're like, I just don't want to do this day. My faith grounds me in the sense that the purpose of my life is not to have just kind of easy, all my days be easy and pleasant and that as though they're not worthwhile if they aren't, that actually because I don't, I'm not in charge of constructing my own life and making it, you know, as just uninterruptedly pleasant as possible for myself, that there is a greater purpose going on there and that, I mean, God promises that he's working for good in all circumstances of my life. So that includes the hard days and the frustrating days and in the circumstances that I wouldn't have chosen for myself that I can trust that they are meaningful and conducing to good. And so, you know, that gives you a real kind of peace and purpose that you're like, okay, I don't particularly want to do this, but I actually believe it's worthwhile um, even when I can't see why. So, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I like it. Cool. And uh, one thing that we do to wrap up each week is just help people find out more. So what are three resources for anyone that wants to think more about uh, spirituality and this kind of shared journey that we're on? Mm. Yeah, good question. I mean, recommending books to people is like my favourite thing, basically. So. Yeah, we did start the episode that way, so That's it's true. only fair that we finish it the same way. I mean, I'm tempted to go Dante, but, like, it's quite an undertaking and, you know, like, I get that it is not for everyone. But if you're in a midlife crisis, maybe Dante yeah, particularly. Yeah, good, <laughs> good. Um, But I would say, okay, here's three options. One is a book called Nothing Bad Ever Happens Here by Heather Rose, the Australian novelist. She's It's a memoir. It's kind of, it's essentially a spiritual memoir. She you know, isn't of any particular religion, but she's had a lot of kind of spiritual experiences and supernatural kind of encounters throughout her life. And she writes about them and they're like wild and fascinating. And, <laughs> and you know, she she's someone who is like, I think everybody has these stories, you know, even if we don't talk about them um, as Australians. So I think just for sort of opening up your mind to the more to life that there might be. She's a really fascinating, easy read, very kind of confronting type read. I think if you want to know what the Christian version of these things is, like what those, what pillars it has to offer um, on the kind of meaning and purpose and um, community and ritual. Someone who has a bit of a quirky account of this that I think approaches it from a different angle to the usual sort of like, here's why Christianity is reasonable, which it is, but we're talking about something more kind of experiential and emotional here. Francis Bufford wrote a book called Unapologetic. I think the subtitle is Why Despite Everything Christianity Still Makes surprising emotional sense. Yep, that's it. I can verify because someone recommended it uh, on a podcast I was listening to just as I came here. So. Oh, there you go. Yeah, it's fabulous. He's just a delight to read and, you know, he kind of tells the story of Christianity from a really unusual angle and in a way that really acknowledges just our actual experience of being human. Doesn't mind a cuss word either. No, that's right. <laughs> He's a very funny writer. He's very British. Um, and I, I know, like, maybe not everyone enjoys that. I very much enjoy that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, also, like, read Jesus. Like, if, if you haven't picked up one of the biographies of Jesus by Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, those are short and he is worth encountering 
Like go go to the source. Um, if you're thirsty, like go find out what Jesus has to say without any kind of filters or anything. Go straight to the source and encounter him. See what that does. Lovely. Well, thanks so much for joining the show today, Natasha. Thanks for your time and thanks for the meaningful chat. Thank you. Do you believe in ghosts, in angels, in spirits, in the soul, in God or a higher power? Do you believe your life has meaning and purpose? These, of course, aren't insignificant questions. And I hope today's episode gives you a bit of dare and a bit of fearlessness to turn those wandering thoughts and questions into real-life conversations. Besides, there's a good chance your friends and family will want to talk about them anyway. In the lead-up to this episode, I caught an Uber, and I shared some of the things that came up in my conversation with Natasha. And straight away, the Uber driver asked if I believed in ghosts. And it was funny how even though I'd been thinking about it all week, and that I was the one that brought it up, the question still caught me off guard. I said that I'm fairly sceptical in general, but also theoretically open to it. I asked his opinion too, and he said he absolutely does, but also wasn't sure of the difference between a ghost and a soul. And I'm not sure I could tell you either, but it was super refreshing to have a conversation, however fleeting, that went beyond the ordinary. And I wonder if you're open to exploring similar ideas with the people around you. I'm so appreciative of the team at the Centre for Public Christianity and the way that they're able to regularly start some of these spiritual conversations in our culture to get us thinking, reflecting, and hoping for life beyond the culture wars. And I'm thankful for Natasha's voice and careful work in the public square. We're trying to do a similar thing with Third Space, although we also want to create grassroots communities and informal spaces where these conversations can be done alongside fellow travellers as well. More on that in a moment. But I love some of the terrain that we covered in this episode, And while we could have devoted an entire episode to things like loneliness, affluence, loss of meaning, community, purpose, rituals, etc., it was great seeing their interconnectedness. For all the gains and the wonders and the convenience of the internet, there's still that sense of it flattening our grasp on transcendence and altering our understanding of what's real and what's imagined, what's true, what's a matter of personal choice or preference. We mentioned an article by Freddie DeBoer, and he wrestles with the paradoxical nature of the internet and how, when we're online, we're permitted to be a vegetable, to simply consume, to browse, and to spectate at a distance. It becomes a form of escape, a coping mechanism, and a way of numbing the pain. And yet the pain comes from a sense of dissatisfaction and shallowness that the internet itself helps create, and then intensifies. So we're all confronted with a choice on how deep we'll pursue fulfilling activities and a fulfilling life itself. I mean, we all want more, right? To get more, you're going to have to give more as well, to take risks, to choose things that challenge us, to invest in meaningful relationships and communities that are committed to the greater good rather than our own vanity projects. And putting ourselves out there means we might even get hurt. There's a famous C.S. Lewis quote where he talks about the heart like this. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. It's a powerful quote. And ultimately, he's saying we have choice. We have agency. We have each other for the common journey. And that's where I think the value of religious communities really shine through. It's all well and good to be spiritual and not religious. I totally get why people don't want to associate with organised religion. But at the same time, there are a lot of misconceptions out there. And I'd want to ask you if you think you'll genuinely find what you're looking for outside of these communities. Or will you simply find more of yourself and not much else beyond that? I think it's in those moments of vulnerability and entanglement that the richness of life becomes ever more lucid, more possible, maybe even easier than we ever imagined. To be frank, mere religion doesn't do much for me either. But the spiritual depth of Christianity and Christian community is easy to underestimate and even easier to see as some kind of crutch for needy people, which it is, but I'd argue that we're all needy people deep down and there's so much more than that as well. 
And so I hope this conversation opens the door for curiosity and reflection on what our heart yearns for. I hope your heart is able to be broken. I hope your mind is open to being changed. And I hope your soul is thirsty for spiritual connection. If it is, then you should consider Christianity, where Christ offers living water that will quench our insatiable appetite for that something more. Rather than numbing the pain of existence, it can heal our wounds, help us embrace life, and live it more fully. Thanks for listening to Deeper Questions, and well done if you've gotten this far. A quick update to share with you guys, we're about halfway through our first season, so we're going to take a break for a little while, and then we'll come back with plenty more interesting conversations. But we also have some exciting plans for the future of the show, and we want to hear your deeper questions, like in real time. We're looking to create some deliberate spaces to interact with us semi-regularly. We'd love to continue exploring these ideas and topics together with other like-minded people who are thinking about life and faith and meaning. And we want to hear what you think. So stay tuned for that. You could also email us your thoughts so far. We'd love to hear what you've enjoyed most and what topics we could maybe do in the future. But in the meantime, why not listen back to previous episodes and feel free to give a review or drop a five-star rating if you found them helpful. I'm Aaron Johnstone, and this is Deeper Questions. Deeper Questions.